This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Radio. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Welcome to you and all the best of the holiday season. Libby is off this week. She will be back on Monday. It is also the season of the tridemic, COVID-19, RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, and influenza. How are we managing as a society against these three respiratory viruses? And is this year worse than last because there are three viruses rather than just one circulating? We have two experts on Fight Back today to answer these questions for us, as well as any you may have about COVID, RSV, the flu. The phone lines are open, as always, 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740. That second one is toll-free. Dr. Tim Sly is an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. And Dr. Alon Vaisman is also an epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Hello to you both. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having us. Well, let's start with uh, the questions that I posed a moment ago. Dr. Sly, this time last year we were consumed by Omicron. Now we have three viruses in our midst. So how is the situation different this year versus last? Well, the big increase in influenza started earlier and climbed more steeply than we'd seen it for many years, even before the pandemic came along. Uh, It has sort of peaked a little bit in Canada and has started to go down a little bit, but don't uh, don't, uh, count your chickens before they hatch. Uh, That could well go back up again. At the moment, it's it's still outside the the normal range of uh, of such a thing. Influenza B, we've hardly seen uh, much of that at all. And respiratory syncytial virus uh, started early again this year and climbed uh, fairly fairly, uh, higher than it would normally be expected to do, but it's still leveled off a little bit now. Dr. Vaisman, from an infectious disease point of view, how are we managing? We heard, we were hearing a lot from uh, the pediatric hospitals before the holidays that they were really crammed in the ER and the ICUs. Uh, What is the situation looking like now? Yeah, that's exactly true. So earlier in the year, and that's peaking around the end of November, there was high numbers of RSV and flu cases among children. But actually across Canada, those numbers have dropped. So the positivity of the testing and the number of cases have actually dropped since early December. And we anticipated that we might see a peak in the adult population around this time or pretty soon. But for unclear reasons, we haven't seen that yet, or it may not actually arrive. So our flu and RSV numbers in the hospital actually remain quite stable around what you might expect in previous seasons, maybe slightly lower. Usually flu and RSV uh, peak around the first week of January. So in the adult population, we may end up seeing the same thing fairly soon. But fortunately, we haven't seen the same surge in the adult side as we have on the pediatric side. And Dr. Sly, Tim, would that be because um, we're all getting together in recent days and then you have the incubation period and then people start developing the symptoms? Well, all of the above, and probably another half a dozen factors, okay. too. I mean, we're only, what, three days past Christmas uh, celebration, and uh, that's a little low on the incubation period. We've got the rest of the festive season to go through, and every year we've had this great surge in January, early January, that reflects what we were doing or not doing properly during the festive season. Uh, but with, with regard COVID, which is the other part of your question, uh, Jane, uh, if we look at the wastewater signal, which is fairly reliable, uh, how much of the, I mean, the samples are showing positive, at the moment, uh, the best figures we have are about December the 14th or 15th, so it's about a week out of date, but at that point we were quite a bit above what we were last year. I'd say about five times higher than we were last year, but that's fairly what we 
would expect. Remember, as we slide down the slope into uh, what will become eventually an endemic state, you know, where, where COVID is with us pretty much all the time on a seasonal basis, that's where we would expect to see. We're seeing a lot of virus moving around. Luckily, we have this fairly good wall of immunity we've built up. It's not perfect by any means, but it's certainly far better than it was this time last year. And so we don't expect to see great surges of acute illness, but we do expect to see signs of the virus still there and moving through the community. Okay, interesting. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, so this time last year when Omicron arrived and there was concern that the, the original two shots and, and the third booster for those who had had it was not enough to combat Omicron. So here we are a year later. Uh, some people have gotten their bivalent shots, um, Moderna against BA1 and Pfizer against 4 and 5. But has there been enough uptake on the bivalent vaccine to uh, quash the hospitalization rate for COVID-19 at this point? It's a, it's a good question. I think we could always do better with our vaccination rates. And what we're seeing with COVID since around March and April is that there's just been an up and down kind of fluctuation of COVID for the last nine months or so, which probably will continue for the next few months. So with, with slightly rising hospitalizations and dropping, but really in terms of the vaccination, the most important thing to focus on there is not preventing infection, but preventing death and hospitalization. Mm -hmm. And therefore the people who need to focus on getting their boosters are the age over 50 and especially age over 65 individuals. So really they need to get at least three and likely four doses for those people. But beyond that, if we, you know, the, the message around vaccination, certainly it benefits people, but not to the same extent as we did before Omicron. And so I think the messaging is giving that there's only a limited amount of, you know, bandwidth and communication that can be done by public health, it really should still continue to focus on that that group of people who very strongly benefit from vaccination. Well, let me make sure our Zoomer radio listeners know that the phone lines are open. We have uh, Dr. Vaisman, Dr. Sly on the line. If you have any questions, if you want to share your COVID or RSV or influenza experience, how it went for you, how you managed, uh, we would certainly like to hear some firsthand stories and the numbers to call, as always, are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Certainly, it's, it's difficult these days, uh, Dr. Sly, to find an individual who uh, hasn't had COVID-19 or at least hasn't had COVID-19 with symptoms. Um, how much of the population likely has had it in some form over the last three years. Oh, uh, some early estimates, even about six months ago, were suggesting that probably 50 to 60 percent of people have encountered the virus in some way. And that doesn't mean to say they've been uh, acutely ill. Right from the beginning, uh, going back to the early 2020, we, one of the characteristics of this coronavirus that didn't, we didn't see in with SARS-1 in 2003 was the very high rate of asymptomatic uh, mm -hmm. cases going around. People who were able to spread it to some degree but no, actually have any signs. In fact, in Italy, there was an interesting study in a small village that showed as many as about 60 to 70 percent of people might actually have been asymptomatic at the time of the survey. So there's a bit, a lot of unknown uh, stuff going on there. One thing that I think uh, you've mentioned, and uh, Dr. Weissman is exactly right about the concentration on the people who are most vulnerable. Uh, we seem need to boost them a little bit more. But <clears throat> at the other end of the scale, we're seeing an alarming uh, drop in uh, childhood vaccinations too as a result of the kind of vaccine hesitancy that's been uh, popularly spread around. We're seeing measles beginning to come back. You know, this was virtually on the very doorstep of being eradicated a few years ago. But with people like uh, Wakefield and, and so on, and now the, the you know, anti-vax movement and hesitation, we're seeing that dropping. We need at least 95%, and we're down to, I think, 80 80, 83% in some areas, and this is way below. We're seeing increases, in other words, with mm -hmm. childhood diseases. Oh, and that's interesting, too, because before COVID, uh, there might have been a very small uh, 
um, semi-vocal group of anti-vax uh, type people, but they were in the extreme minority. Uh, how big a how big of a part have uh, the anti-COVID vaxxers been, Dr. Sly, in discouraging parents from getting the vaccines that children have been getting for decades? Well, well, of course, with the uh, social media, we, we don't really know where all of these messages are coming from necessarily. People are flooded with this, and if they're a little hesitant or not sure or haven't read much about it, they can be easily persuaded by these very loud voices uh, crying, he uh, watch out, hesitation. Uh, and, of course, public health voice is very subdued and calm and mature, but it doesn't get heard as much. We did see a survey recently in, I think it was, it was the U.S. Ohio area that showed that an increase of between 16 to about 28 percent of people now, parents, are now saying that they should be able to decide whether to vaccinate or not for MMR, right? That's gone up to one in four. Now, that's, that's very alarming. That and is alarming. It, yeah, so that's in, mumps, measles, and rubella. Exactly. Right. And in the same state, Ohio is saying they now have a law that prohibits the quarantining of a person who's been exposed to measles that hasn't actually been, been symptomatic. Now, measles is, is probably still the most transmissible virus that we know of. And so they have a law that prohibits the, the quarantining of people who probably are able to spread it around. This is a, a backward, this is a dangerous backward step, almost to the 16th century. Dr. Vaisman, would you like to add to that, that? And then we'll get back into talking about how COVID is looking right now. Yes, it's, fortunately, there's been a, a very negative knock-on effect from COVID onto other types of vaccinations and general kind of distrust of the medical system in general, which, you know, in, soon we'll, have, we'll see the consequences of this with a lot of preventable illnesses, a lot of preventable infections. Unfortunately, COVID vaccination became very polarized, very politicized. Um, so really, it's going to take a lot of work over the next years to try to rebuild that trust from public health and the scientific community to try to get people to understand why vaccinations are important, why they're uh, so essential at preventing death, especially in the eight children and elderly individuals. So uh, hopefully we'll see a lot better messaging coming out soon. Right. Uh, we have Dr. Alon Vaisman with us as well as Dr. Tim Sly and we're talking about, uh, primarily we were talking about the tridemic, COVID, RSV and influenza. And I think what's, you know, just anecdotally, uh, Dr. Sly, there seem to be the people who have gotten COVID more recently, uh, me included back at the beginning of October, uh, have symptoms. Uh, does it, would it be fair to say that the um, evolution of COVID we're into now is more symptomatic than the original virus? More symptomatic. Well, uh, would more was, people be having symptoms than, say, the group of asymptomatic people back at the beginning of COVID? Well, of course, if you've got a bit, a bit of a strange anomaly there, because if we suspect that there's some healthy people walking around that might be uh, might carry the virus, we don't know because they don't have symptoms. The only way you're going to find that out is to do a, a targeted survey of apparently healthy people and then test them, and that's very, very, very not. It's not commonly done because mm -hmm. it's, it's too busy doing other things. So we honestly don't know the asymptomatic rate. There's been a few you know, surveys going along, along, but it's not a routine process. We're too busy looking after other people. Uh, the symptoms do change with the different, um, uh, different uh, variants, as Dr. Weissman can probably detail much more accurately. Um, but we're seeing also that there are new variants coming along, and those are things that we should really be worried about. So, Dr. Vaisman, what is the dominant variant right now? Is it still BA5? Yeah, so 4 and 5 are steadily decreasing, and DQ1 is the variant that's rising. Uh, and so it's true that we're going to see continuing changes with the variants. We're going to see newer variants show up. The fortunate trend that we've seen with Omicron, the kind of silver lining to all of this, is that the infections have been persistently quite uh, contagious, but the mortality, morbidity associated with them has actually decreased uh, on a per-case basis. So the per-case, for example, mortality from Omicron is l much lower than it was for Delta or Alpha or the previous original Wuhan strain, for example. So, so yes, we, we will anticipate that it can continue to, to mutate. We're going to see new strains. But if the trend continues, like we've seen over the course of the last 13 months or so, 
then it will, so far hasn't shown that it'll trend in a way that's more dangerous to us. And what about the bivalent vaccines, Dr. Vaisman, in terms of their efficacy in keeping hospitalization and death rates down with this new variant you're talking about? I think what we should expect from future mRNA vaccines is that they will probably continue doing a good job of protecting us from being hospitalized and dying, especially in vulnerable groups. But I don't think we should anticipate, based on the current technology, that they're going to do a very good job at preventing infection for very long. At best, getting a boost will protect you for probably three months, and then you're back to baseline in terms of your risk of infection. Okay. Just because of the nature of the vaccine, the nature of the antibodies that are generated from the vaccine, we should probably at this stage, unless something really changes in the technology or changes in the... Even if we change the, the actual variant in the vaccine, it's, it's just going to shift. You're just going to be kind of chasing your tail. But again, the purpose of vaccination isn't to prevent, at this stage of the pandemic, isn't so much to prevent you from getting infected. It's to prevent you from having a bad outcome, and that's what we should be focusing on with messaging. So let's talk about where we should be at. So a healthy 50-plus person in southern Ontario, what shots should they have had at this point, Dr. Vaisman? Um, so at this point, that individual, according to the NASI guidelines, the National Immunization Council, they should probably have had at least three and then probably four doses in order to reduce the likelihood of dying from COVID. But beyond that, it's unclear whether there's benefit in providing further doses. We're at this kind of in-between stage where many people, especially in the vulnerable groups, are asking, you know, is a fifth dose, a sixth dose going to be necessary? And we just don't have the data anymore. It's, it's kind of in data-free zone now. So we'll uh, probably just have one bivalent shot for this uh, fall, winter, spring season, and then maybe have another one next fall? Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. I don't think we know exactly what's going to happen. Um, if the COVID numbers decline or they don't have a sustained increase over the course of the spring, it, it may not justify having another push to get people vaccinated again, unless we're seeing a large proportion of elderly individuals dying as a result of COVID. But beyond that, it may end up being something like an every six-month or every 12-month approach. Because if you continue this messaging of asking people to get vaccinated that frequently, it likely also not only has diminishing returns, but it's just not a sustainable approach, mm-hmm. especially if the evidence currently doesn't support getting it for prevention of death or hospitalization. Like if we if we don't have the answer to that question, it doesn't justify these kind of these public health measures. We should really be focusing on where there's most benefit, and hopefully we will have better data soon in the next few months that'll help answer these questions. Right, uh, and get into a situation where we're getting a shot for the flu in the fall, and then a shot for COVID in the fall as well, and who knows what else uh, may come up. Uh, we do have some callers that want to get in on the conversation. Uh, Shelley in Thornhill. Hi, you're on Fight Back. Go ahead. Oh, good morning, everybody, or good afternoon. Um, my question might have been answered, but I've had all five shots. So I've had the bivalent four and five, and I may have an opportunity in January to get the bivalent one shot. Should I consider getting that since I heard you say that the bivalent one is rising? Okay, Dr. Vaisman, that's maybe more in your wheelhouse. Uh, so the strain that it's found in the bivalent is one of the Omicron strains earlier in the pandemic. And what it probably will do is prevent, protect you from being infected to some degree for probably three months after you've got the dose. Whether or not it reduces your chances of being hospitalized or dying from COVID, a fifth or sixth dose, we, we don't know yet the answer to that question. I would presume that there is some small marginal benefit, but that's really what it, as far as we know now, that's what that's the benefit it does for you. Okay, you Shelley? You protected for that short term. Yeah, I had the bivalent four and five in September, and I would have the opportunity in January, which is more than three months. That's why I was thinking it might make sense since I'm over 70. I think that Shelley's in the minority, isn't she, Dr. Baseman? Yes, quite a small proportion of people have been vaccinated with three or more doses, for more than three doses, I should say. Uh, a lot, I mean, a very small number of people are at that stage where you're describing, but it's certainly up to you knowing those kinds of benefits. That's all we know now based on the available science in terms of the benefit. But certainly you could go ahead and get a sixth shot. If you could. You could. Uh, okay. The NASI recommends that you should probably wait six months between okay. and earliest would be three months. Okay. okay. Thanks, well, Shelley. Thank you very much. Thank you, because there are probably others in your boat as well. So thanks for Well, asking. I have a lot of friends, and we've all kept up yeah. with our shots. Exactly. Most of us have not had. Right. Um, 
No, I thank COVID you. At all. So another because, six months, maybe. Yeah. Okay, thanks for calling. Let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. What's your question? Hello. Mine's kind of the reverse of the last one. Um, I had, a, I think it was back in October, whatever, I just was fourth when it was the bivalent of the uh, the Moderna. Okay. And the Pfizer came out a couple of weeks later. Right. So it being, let's say, more than three months, I'm 68 and a half years old, should I be looking to try and sometime in January get the bivalent that is for the four and five? That's a good question. What do you think, Dr. Vaseman? Yep, if it's been more than six months since your last dose, you could certainly go ahead and, and get that dose. Again, if it's your fifth or sixth dose, again, we don't know how much benefit it will provide you overall in terms of the more serious complications, but certainly it will provide you some benefit in preventing you from getting infected. So that well, you, you certainly could go ahead and do that after more than okay, six months. Okay, it'll, it'll only be about like three months, a little plus, come January. Yeah, That's three fine. months, yeah. okay. Wait three months to be the earlier, earlier. try and get it sooner. You could get it, three months is the earliest that NACI recommends, and six months would be the most common. It almost doesn't matter, again, which mRNA vaccine you get. At this stage, there's, there's very little ben difference between okay. them. Okay, okay thank now, you, Daryl. Thank you for calling in. Three we months has passed, so I just go to the drugstore, do I yeah. call my doctor, or what? You can do that. You take your health card, and uh, they'll review the history of okay. your vaccinations, and you okay. go from there. Okay, okay thank, thank you. you. Everyone. Be well. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, Daryl. Okay, we need to wrap up this segment. Um, just final thoughts on how about this question, Dr. Sly? Are we getting closer to the official end of the COVID pandemic? Oh, we are sliding down toward that, yes, there's no question. And, and with this hybrid immunity we've built up with both the natural infection and the vaccination, we're looking much, much better than we were a year ago, but we've got to continue that on. I saw a great poster from UK just a week ago, and it showed on a big fence, it showed, uh, think of it like your, 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 like your cell phone battery. You know, immediately after vaccination or a few weeks after, you're fully topped up, and it slowly wanes. So you need to get it topped up again between three and six months. Six months, ideally, but if you're in real threats, about, think about after three months. Okay. And Dr. Vaseman, uh, what are your thoughts as we approach the three-year anniversary of COVID? Yeah, I, I agree that um, the important thing for people to focus on is the fact that the mortality rate has dramatically dropped compared to three years ago. COVID is a very different disease than it was before. It still means we need to do things to protect ourselves, including vaccination and masking where it's appropriate to do so. But it is important for people to understand that the threat of COVID is very, very different than it was when it began in March of 2020. Well, I wish you both a very happy new year. And once again, thank you for your time during the holidays. Thank, Thank you, you, Jane. Take care. Dr. Tim Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Jane for Libby, and coming up next on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, just when air travel was getting better, it definitely got worse this holiday season. We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back next week. Toronto's Pearson International Airport is making headlines again and not in a good way. Many travelers are complaining that it's taken days for them to get their baggage after arrival at their destinations and the communication of the status or whereabouts of their luggage has been poor. We heard this morning from Tory Gas at the Greater Toronto Airport's Authority that the situation is improving and the luggage backlog is clearing. But that still means travelers are waiting for their bags. So even with the wintry weather, how did this happen? And what can travelers do about compensation for all of the inconvenience? Joining us to discuss and hopefully provide some answers, Dr. Carl Moore, airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University, and Martin Firestone, travel expert and president of Travel Secure, Inc. Hello to both of you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jane. So the reasons provided for the luggage delays are weather-related flight disruptions as well as frozen loading equipment. Marty, are those believable or even valid excuses? I, I actually do believe it. I, I think at the end of the day, we have a true perfect storm. We had frigid temps. We have 
snow, not only in Ontario, not in only in every province in Canada, but also the U.S. The whole thing just came together on the three busiest days of the year. So let's give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt and suggest that it did break down because of the problems. Will it ever happen again? I sure hope not, and they'll do something about it. But yeah. I believe it was weather-related for the moment. And Carl, what about you? I agree that it is weather-related. I also think that what it is is we have a system which was... Um, down 90% during COVID and took a while for it to, to come back. And there was considerable surprise around the world that they came back as fast as they did, in a lot of quarters at least. And so you had security people, you had baggage handlers, you had flight attendants and so on, where there was a shortage of people in the industry. And it took a while to retrain them. That's starting to kick in, but you know it takes a long time to train a pilot. But it still takes time to train security guards and flight attendants and I think the whole system was just exhausted by the year it's been through. So I think that's a, a second contributing factor after the weather. Wouldn't it make sense, though, to somehow ensure that people's bags are getting out of the airport and onto the plane before they take off? I mean, already flights are delayed. What's the big deal about waiting a little bit longer for people's luggage? As it turns out, waiting a little bit longer was not going to be the answer if you said how about waiting a few days they, they the sheer volume of all those bags could never find their ways onto the right plane for the mm -hmm. right person at the right time bottom line is it, it no no amount of time would have helped this situation it was doomed from the start and unlike the summer when you just didn't have bags when you got back this is having bags when you land at your resort and it is a terrible situation to not have your clothes with you when you're when you're on a seven-day trip right and then so that that uh, prompts this question, what is a reasonable amount of time to sort out problems and get baggage to travelers? Because, Marty, as you say, a lot of people are just going away for seven days. Yeah. Ideally, you'd like to think that that bag is delayed more than three to six hours, if that. But that's not the case. We have people that haven't had bags for two, three, four, five days. Uh, amongst all the other problems going on there and not having a plane to even come home with, but their holidays are ruined and there is no compensation mm -hmm. out there that will ever pay them back for that. That's for sure. Uh, Dr. Moore, Carl, how unusual was this situation? Or it's still going on at Pearson Airport where bags are at the airport and people are at their travel destinations now for a matter of days. Well, worse than we've seen, but it's been a tough year. Toronto and Montreal airports, uh, we love being world-class in Canada, but we're the worst two airports in the world for part of this year because of things like this, delays and luggage and so on. So it's been an ongoing year of just difficulties in Canada's system. It's made worse by winter. It's made worse by the busiest travel time year of Christmas. So I think it's going to get better. Maybe this is optimistic, and, you're, and, and if it doesn't, you call me out on it, I'm sure, Jane. But in January, it should get better as... You know, schools get back in. My wife's a grade five teacher. Families are back. The amount of uh, travel decline, and I think the new employees will kick in, and the sense of exhaustion in the system will be a bit less. So I'm optimistic that from January 10th on, things should be looking a bit more civilized than they have been for the a good part of the year. And is it fair to say, Carl, that, um, you know, when you travel at high peak times, like the Christmas, New Year's week, uh, the beginning of summer, that this is the risk you take, right, by traveling at that time of year? Well, you know, I've traveled for decades, and we've never had it this bad in my experience. You know, I was in Calgary twice in, in December, so, I've, you know, I travel quite a bit, and it's not been this bad. Generally, you didn't worry about it, like, hey, it might be a busy time at the airport. Um, but I've had luggage lost very, very little out of uh, hundreds and hundreds, probably a couple thousand flights over the years. Yeah. So it's more of a rare circumstance, except for today, it's, it's what's going to be taking a lot of people. What I do is I only have carry-on. And I only take carry-on, uh, I only put bags underneath them traveling with students. I'm taking 40 students to Ghana on the uh, Ivory Coast in February. You know, I just got to break down and realize that we're going to take luggage. But other than that, I only do carry-on. Now, our kids are a bit older than carry their own stuff, so I think we had small kids, it would be more challenging. But um, just accept that they may lose your luggage and make sure you have a bathing suit in your carry-on at least, if you're going to Hawaii. 
Yeah, and that, that's a really good point. Um, and I did want to ask you both about that. This concept of checked baggage, um, should we try to limit what we take and take a carry-on bag? Uh, Marty, is that sort of the way things are transitioning? If you can swing it, don't bother yeah. checking luggage? Prior to this disaster last week, people were already changing to carry-on just because they didn't want to wait for their bags when they landed based on what they had during the summer. So that alone changed the mentality of many, but it seems we forget quickly. And now for the holidays, we went back to packing full bags. So the bottom line is, I think we are heading that way. And another bad experience like we just had will make us finally say, I don't care. We'll just go with carry on. And at least we know when we land, we'll have our bag with us. I've got Marty. The downside of that is that I'm uh, I'm a reasonably frequent uh, flyer. I, I, I sit in the back on business class, but I get to go on fairly soon. But, you know, these days, they're asking for people to take off carry-on bags and check it and so on. So the downside, particularly in the winter when we have our boots and coats and everything else, it may be difficult to to take everyone on board if you're one of the last people to get on the plane. Right. Absolutely. I think it makes sense, nevertheless, to do it. Well, and it, it helps you kind of streamline what you take as well, right? Even if you're going to a resort and you, you're there for a week or 10 days, I mean, you literally need a few bathing suits, a few cover-ups, and stuff to wear out for dinner at night and, you know, whatever uh, toiletries you can pack. And, and, of course, they always have the uh, convenience stores on site so you can get your shampoos and things like that when you get there. It's just a new way of thinking about traveling, Marty. Hundred percent, and I think even the, is it Sunwing? Someone was already charging for carry-on. I think twenty-five dollars a bag. If that wasn't just your purse or your um, uh, carry-on, but any kind of luggage per se that you were putting on top in, in the uh, overhead bins, you pay for that. So that may be the future too, where right. many airlines are going to start doing that. Right when they see that more people are are trying to pack smaller, uh, we do have a phone call here, Jerry in Markham. You're on Fight Back. What would you like to add? I just wanted to mention that this year and uh, two years ago, uh, we went to to Greece. When I went to Greece two years ago, my bags ended up in Spain. I didn't get them till I was on my on my way home. I had to go out and buy new clothes because I had absolutely nothing, and because I'm I was single, you know, I only carry a small amount of stuff. And just this summer, my son and his wife and the baby went to Greece and. They lost her, her luggage with all the baby stuff in it. And I was running back and forth to Pearson and phoning the airport, and they phoned Greece and everything. Finally, I told my son, grab the bus and go to, go to the airport and look in the, and see what's there. So finally, they were visiting in Tripoli, so they went, he went to the airport. He walked in the door. The bag was sitting right almost in front of his nose underneath the guy who, who manages the room looking at it for two weeks and he couldn't find a purple bag. Wow. Well, and there it was, right there. And, that, <laughs> and that we, they're traveling with a six-month-old baby. Yeah. All the baby's food, baby's clothes, everything, everything. was in there. They had to go and buy all new stuff. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, thank I you for your call. Yeah, thank you for your call. It is becoming more and more of a common problem, especially as we've come out of uh, the worst part of COVID-19. I want to ask you both, um, Marty, what about compensation? And at what point should you get compensation for a lost bag or a delayed bag? Well, if you had the foresight to buy cancellation or interruption insurance, which has an element of baggage in it, then you are halfway there in the sense that you at least know if the bag was delayed more than six hours, you're entitled to spend up to $900 for uh, personal effects and things like that. So that's good news. If you didn't, then you are depending now on what the airline's position is. And that's going to be interesting to see what they agree to based on the fact that it was out of their control. So, I mean, this is going to just drag and drag and drag. And there's nowhere to begin. Where are you going to call? What are you going to do? There's nothing you can do right now other than keep all your receipts. I can't stress that enough of anything you purchased while you were away. And, Carl, how amenable are airlines to providing you some compensation if you don't have the insurance up front? Well, the CTA, the Canadian Transport Agency, has strengthened the rules in the last year or so. And it really is getting more clear, but it's such a 
challenging circumstance for the airlines, somewhat in their defense, that it's been overwhelming. But they have a clear responsibility, and I think next year we'll see them stepping up to the plate in terms of when it's nature's fault, when it's the fault of the airline, things under its control. They really are clearer rules than there was a couple of years ago. And if you go to the Canadian Transport Agency website, you can see what they are and uh, I think that you'll be able to hold the airlines to those rules. Okay, good advice. Let's go to Jody in Toronto. Jody, welcome to Zoomer Radio. What's your question or comment? I'm just uh, listening to you folks talking, and it makes me so sad because you're saying expect substandard uh, service. True. And accepted yes right and it's just so sad it is sad sad. you're absolutely right and and to some extent marty that's what we're talking about right is is realizing this is the new reality when can we expect it to change and go back to the way it was i'm not sure there ever is going to be a normal that we're used to and that's more to do with pandemic and now the subsequent changes now this may be a way of life going forward it's a question of how we're going to adapt and your caller makes a lot of sense we're almost saying we have to accept this if this was a business it wouldn't be running very long if they were running like uh, this kind of quality control and service so sad yes it is but i think we just have to be smarter travelers and try to avoid these kind of situations and, and just possible. just to punctuate that point um marty this is this was a pearson problem this wasn't a specific airline problem right the luggage situation was the belt that's a pearson problem yeah. but everything else from the delayed and canceled flights i cannot tell you the nightmares of clients calling me who are supposed to get out 6 15 a.m in the morning to orlando to catch a flight to nasa yeah. everything backfired it's, and that was air canada you can line up every airline and, and there was a problem with each and every one of them Looking forward to uh, 2023, uh, what do you think is going to play out uh, now that we've been through the worst of the pandemic and this this incident where everything went wrong at the same time? Um, Carl, you go ahead first. Well, I think it's going to get a bit better in January and February, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we'll probably not get back, never get back to where it was in the, you know, in the heyday when the times were great. But I think we'll see an improvement and the, the government's uh, tighten rules. The airlines recognize this is hurting them. And I think things will gradually improve, but at a slow rate. And uh, we may have seen, you know, the golden years a couple of years ago, unfortunately. Marty, your final thoughts? Sadly, I agree. And the problem is, is that we just have our expectations after COVID, we thought the world was going to be perfect again, anything but that, because weather was the problem, as we always thought it may be, but never imagined it would be on the three busiest days of the year. Yeah. Well, thank you all for your time, and we will hope for better travel days for more people in 2023. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Dr. Carl Moore, airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University, and Martin Firestone, travel expert and president of Travel Secure, Inc. It is Jane for Libby, and coming up in our final segment of Fight Back, a special shout-out to our listeners in Buffalo and western New York in general, where the blizzard has completely debilitated uh, that American city. Our 740 signal booms into the Buffalo area, and we are going to talk about uh, this this historic blizzard uh, that's happened in recent days. It was a deadly blizzard. It continues to be deadly. Uh, so we'd like to hear your stories. How are you making out there in Buffalo? We will also get a first-hand look uh, at the recovery of the deadly storm in western New York with a, an expert as well. That is all coming up next. So let me give you the numbers too. 416-360-0740 if you're calling in from outside the GTA You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back next week. Buffalo is just a 90-minute drive from Toronto, but what a difference the people of that city experienced last Friday and Saturday versus what we dealt with here in Toronto. Some neighborhoods in Toronto received just a couple of centimeters of snow. In Buffalo, they got about 1.8 meters of snow in blizzard conditions, and people died. The number now at 34. 
four, and there could be more as they continue, the crews continue to try to rescue people, recover people from their vehicles in frozen conditions. Absolutely tragic. What went wrong, and why wasn't the city of Buffalo better prepared, or... Can you prepare for a storm of this magnitude? Dr. Natalie Simpson is Chair and Professor of Operations, Management and Strategy at the University of Buffalo and an expert on emergency preparedness. Dr. Simpson, hello, thank you. Hello. How did you make out personally? How did you do personally with this storm? (laughs) It's funny, you would ask that personally i am an absolute fraud i actually left the area one day before oh you did and i'm now stuck outside of it yes well i mean good i'm sorry i hope you didn't invite me uh to um provide on the ground coverage no 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 we want to we want to talk we want to talk about uh, basically uh, preparations and and what went wrong or if anything went wrong i mean did you leave the city of buffalo because the storm was coming no, no genius of mine. It was actually a scheduled trip, and they were literally not closing the throughway like uh, we were out of there by a day. So, um, no, it was a complete coincidence. Okay. So, now, uh, but uh, happy to you know talk about it in principle. I just can't. Uh, provide you the on the ground view well that's okay we've heard and seen a lot of that already so what was the forecast was the forecast for 1.8 meters six feet of snow yes but you know like our uh what goes on you know in our area uh you know east of lake erie the the real question is where is that going to fall right because, you know, our lake bands tend to form up uh, so intensely over a certain area that it is very difficult to pinpoint precisely where it's going to fall. And wobbling by just a few miles can place a lake band over a densely populated area or not completely spare it and, um, you know, fall to the suburbs in our south. And so that's not the type of thing that we can say for certain, although they were warning uh, in advance that um, Buffalo was definitely in the sort of the, the cone of probability. So it's not a surprise that that happened. So, so we can't. Ex- yeah. Oh, excuse me. No, that's okay. I just wondered, like, uh, you know, because there was a similar storm uh, in mid-November, and it wasn't yes. nearly as tragic as this particular storm. Can you draw yeah. a comparison? Yeah, because I, I because I can speak to that storm because I actually live uh, somewhat south of Buffalo, and that storm basically took aim at my house. There was about five feet of snow. And there was relatively little snow in um, the city of Buffalo relative to that. You know, that's typical of these bands. But uh, where I live is more just out in the country. So it's not as densely populated. So the the degree of disruption, even though it's still a disruption, is still an emergency, right? And it was still dealt with um, swiftly and to the best of everybody's ability. You know, where one of these bands sets up, uh, dictates a lot of the outcome in that sense, or I should say the impact. Right, Maybe because... Maybe be a little bit more precise. Yeah, interesting, because we heard not a whole lot about Buffalo back in mid-November when some areas did get five or six feet of snow, and in this particular blizzard-like storm, I mean, when we're talking about um, maybe as many as three dozen fatalities and many more, uh, presumably the bands you're talking about hit densely populated areas and areas where people were driving. Yes. Now, there's something else here, though, that we should note if we're reflecting on this tragedy uh, versus the storm in November. It's, here's another important difference, and it's something that we can all, like, learn from because all, all of us everywhere, right, um, should be aware of this. The storm in November did not involve two to three days' worth of whiteout. There's two ways that a snowstorm, right, threatens us. One is with the actual snow and stopping all ground traffic. But two, a snowstorm may or may not involve a lot of whiteout. You know, and we had hurricane-force winds in Buffalo. Yeah. 
And so it was that absolute loss of visibility that, like, uh, the looks like right now, the majority of deaths are people that were found outside. They were probably did get stranded and were trying to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's it's that's that's a blizzard, right? That's how a blizzard um, uh, becomes deadly. Is you nobody can see, and you just become disoriented in that. Now they that that was not really a feature of the storm in november it was just a lot of snow so what would be your best advice in a scenario like what has just happened i mean if you're already outside um presumably the best advice is don't go outside when you're about to get a blizzard but if you're in your vehicle do you stay in your vehicle is that is that the better course of action yes unless you can see shelter better shelter and you can see a way to get there Right, because it's important if if there's like a chain link fence or something, right, between you and the shelter, then uh, that doesn't count. You should stay with your vehicle, because the number one principle of survival in a blizzard is you got to find shelter. And so, uh, if you're in your vehicle, you there's there's this is still an emergency, right? But okay, that's shelter. So unless you were trading it for better shelter, yeah, stay with your vehicle. And and the kinds of things that you should have in your car, and I, I bet these poor people that didn't were wishing that they did, you know, blankets and, and candles and some sort source of, of heat or warmth uh, with extra clothing, heavy boots, that kind of thing. Um, all of that could come in handy to keep you alive. Yeah, and you know, that's a, that's, that is something that we can all learn from and um, be better off everywhere because even if you're in a you know metropolitan area like Toronto it's possible that there could be some type of meteorological event that basically it's not just snow stopping vehicles it's whiteout mm-hmm. because you can't go anywhere if you can't see, and nobody can come get you if they can't see, if there's, like, zero visibility. So you're going to need to survive, right, in your vehicle. And should for, you turn uh, your engine on and keep it on for five or ten minutes and then turn it off? Uh, is there a... Yes. Str- yeah. There's, there, it's, well, <laughs> yeah, well, if you want to explore this idea, you know, it is possible to get thoroughly stranded in a blizzard and to be in the midst of a city. Uh, and uh, under those circumstances, right, it's certainly very helpful if you have that stuff in your vehicle that normally when we drive country roads, we more think about having blankets and candles, right? Mm-hmm. But, it, but it, it, it certainly helps. You should, if you're stranded, say you don't have that. Okay, if you're stranded, you should conserve your resources and think of them as fuel and the charge on your phone, right? And so with fuel, just like you suggested, uh, it's uh, better to run your engine intermittently, uh, depending on how long you're stranded. Remember, it's even if it's freezing cold, it's warmer in the daylight generally than at night. So um, especially think about turning off the engine. But if you think, you should also think about your battery life of the engine. And so, like, if you think somebody's nearby and you want to honk a horn, right, and get their attention, that's perfectly fine. Do that. But really, ideally, you should crank the engine first if it's not on, because you do not want to kill your battery either. Right. Good point. Um, Yeah. So just just think about about staying put and conserving things. Although, at the self-same time, make sure somebody knows where you are. So in terms of, you know, conserving the battery on your phone, you're... First off, if you can, you should try to get your own GPS coordinates, right? Yes. If you don't know how or whatever, okay, that's fine. Right. And then but, pass but if, those if you, along, yeah. Right, right. But if you do get your GPS coordinates, and you know what's also nice to have in a car that we almost never do, is a pen, something to write with. Because what you want to do is give them, if you can retrieve them, give them to uh, your, your, your first call is try to get through to emergency services. And say, I'm stranded, I'm stuck, I'm here. If you can't get your GPS coordinates, then just describe to the best of your ability where you are. But, the, you know, that's, that's critical. Is make sure somebody knows exactly where you are. And then if you, you want to call other parties, you know, your family and whatnot, sure. Also tell them everything you know about exactly where you are. 
um, because that's really, really going to help with rescue. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. Now, is it possible when you look at the city of Buffalo and all of their transportation experts and so on and weather experts, is it possible to prepare for a storm like the one you've just had or is this is this just one of these, you know, once in a lifetime situations where there's nothing you can do really? Well, I have a thinking feeling that these type of um, overpowered weather events aren't going to be once in a lifetime. Yeah, not anymore, anymore, right? Not anymore. So I think that we should <laughs> we we should start adapting and learning to do our best during them, different versions of them. Um, the I preparedness. Mm, I, I can't, I don't see, now, now, this is very easy Monday morning quarterbacking, right? But I do watch, I mean, because it's my, what I study, right? I, I, I do watch the information feeds and stuff. And I think that in terms of preparation, this was so much better than uh, the winter storm in 2014, mm-hmm. which is what I was triangulating it on, because I have, like, a lot of data on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh I don't know that we're going to find out that there was any certain thing that could have been done. It would only perhaps be in mobilizing more equipment to head towards the affected areas sooner, but I'm not saying that that was a problem. I'm only saying that looks like it's the only, in hindsight, right, Right. um, criticism you might. There is some interesting issues that I hope we all look at them as lessons to learn ahead about the idea of driving bans and how soon you should announce them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might, and that might so, have made a difference, right? The, right. Well, there, it, it's okay. So there's a lot of pressure to not announce a driving ban until you're absolutely sure that a driving ban is going to be needed because the driving ban is economically devastating for the community, right? So. You just don't, you do not do that lightly. You mm-hmm. you issue advisories like, no, really, seriously, you don't want to. But that said, I think that we're learning now that, well, employers don't, for the most part, respond as dramatically to advisories as they do bans. And so at least some people could have not been out because they were at their jobs if there had been a ban announced earlier. Right. Now, now Dr. Simpson, uh, we only have a, we literally have a minute left. Um, oh, it just, sorry. It, Talking no, too no, much. It's okay. It's very interesting. <laughs> but the, now the weather warms up over the next week. What needs to happen now in 20, 30 seconds or less? Oh, curb to curb clear, uh, clearing of all of that snow. Yeah. Which another reason why, even though people are going absolutely stir crazy, please stay off the streets if you can, because logistically that's a big deal. But in order to mitigate flooding, we, we now need to go from having carved one skinny little lane down snowbound streets to actually clearing curb to curb. That's a key. All right, to, well, uh, mitigating flooding. We will be and watching. <laughs> we'll be watching from yeah. across the lake. <laughs> Thank you so much for we your time talk. today. <laughs> and safe travels getting back. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Natalie Simpson is Chair and Professor of Operations Management and Strategy at the University of Buffalo and an expert on emergency preparedness. It is Jane for Libby. Come back and join me tomorrow when our Tune Into the Town panel will be here to discuss all things municipal. In the meantime, the number one's at ones after Bob's Comp 6 News. <laughs> Fight Back with Libby Snymer is produced by Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Jordan Chakravarti, Dan Christakos, and Owen Wolf. Check out the Fight Back podcast anytime at zoomerradio.ca or wherever you get your pod. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.